My guest today is Aditya Raj Cole, who is a journalist uh, specializing in conflicts having to do with uh, Kashmir, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. He's been reporting a lot on what's been going on in Pakistan. So with that being said, Aditya, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. question for you to get more for your perspective is I think almost everybody in America agreed on the idea of eventually leaving Afghanistan. Left, right, middle. It was a very small percentage of people in America that didn't want to leave Afghanistan and they wanted to stay because they thought it would have taken a long time to shift the mindset of folks in Afghanistan. Where did we go wrong with the way we left Afghanistan recently? Well, the entire exit strategy of the United States has collapsed. And I would say, Patrick, that they did not have any kind of an idea of how soon the Taliban is really going to take over. And that's where we begin. Now, nobody is saying that the United States should not have gone out. Yes, there's been a larger consensus that yes, there needs to be an exit. Let's face it, United States was not in Kabul or in Afghanistan for nation building. It was not there for governance. It was not there to in fact have a democratically elected government or have a conducive atmosphere for elections to take place. It was there to fight the Al-Qaeda and perhaps the larger nexus of the terror groups that have their epicenter in Afghanistan's neighborhood, in Pakistan. So that's where the United States has collapsed. It has collapsed not just in the understanding of the Taliban, on its understanding of the Pakistan, of its understanding of the ethnic groups and their divide within Afghanistan, but also how there is perhaps intra, uh, you know, United States collapse of policy on Afghanistan, on Pakistan, and this entire region. I say this because military on one hand is doing something else. The diplomats are doing entirely different. So they are trying to convince the Afghan people that their every step is Afghan-led, is for the people of Afghanistan. But to the contrary, what happens on ground is we see the same brutality. Taliban in power, uh, you know, exactly what was happening when the 9-11 attacks happened. What we see, uh, Patrick, is again, those gory visuals, you remember, of that, uh, uh, you know, aircraft of the Air Force at the Kabul airport, running away, almost fleeing, uh, you know, the Kabul Hamid Karzai International Airport, and people trying to escape. Imagine what would be going through their minds that they are climbing uh, the wings of that aircraft to just escape that land somehow. And that is where the U.S. has completely collapsed or shattered. Over the last two years, Zalmay Khalilzad and you know, U.S. diplomats kept saying that we have a plan, we have a strategy, we know where we are going, we absolutely have an idea, but the reality now is what the history will remember is the United States betrayed every Afghan that stood for democracy, that stood for progress, that stood for uh, better ties with the United States, but they felt completely abandoned. You know, and by the way, were you there when that plane was taken off? Were you in Afghanistan when all this was taking place? I wasn't there. I was, I was tracking it from New Delhi, but I've been uh, in touch with the NDS, which is, of course, the secret service of the Afghan. And I've been in touch with several ministers there, uh, including senior diplomats. 
I, in fact, uh, very recently was one of the very few journalists who interviewed Amrullah Saleh, uh, the current acting uh, president uh, of Afghanistan, who we actually do not know where he is right now. But he spoke to me at length for almost half an hour and gave details of what his future strategy or what his thought process really is. So, so let's go back. So I think the, the biggest thing that uh, uh, I believe, and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this, is the challenge was sequencing. It wasn't leaving. It was in what sequence do we leave? What goes first? What goes last? So do you mind uh, shedding, sharing some light on what was the sequence we took and what would have been a better strategy of sequencing in leaving Afghanistan? You know, for the first time, uh, you know, I would say that the entire trust factor in the Taliban and Pakistan was the beginning of the betrayal. You know, United States somehow, the diplomats of United States who were in the negotiating team, led by Zalil Khalilza, uh, you know, Zalmay Khalilza himself, were almost convinced by the Pakistan ISI, the Pakistani diplomats, and even the Taliban, that whatever commitments will happen in Doha will be abided by. Whatever uh, will be signed will be done in letter and spirit. But let's face it, you know, the, we are talking about Taliban. I mean, people who have been radicalized in different seminaries of both Pakistan as well as in Afghanistan. Those people who are completely illiterate, who only believe in Sharia law, they do not believe in any kind of democracy. They do not believe in any kind of education for the women or equal rights for women. So why did Zalmay Khalilzad and the negotiating team have a blind faith over the last two years? And I'll tell you, in 2008, almost this entire process began. I think it was in the mid of 2018 when uh, you know, Zalmay Khalilzad was appointed formally. Uh, you know, as a special envoy. And earlier, I think, I don't remember the exact time, but earlier in 2018, I interviewed Salman Khalilza when he was in New Delhi. And the entire half an hour interview, he was slamming Pakistan. He said almost that Pakistan was the mothership of terrorism, uh, the Lashkare Toiba, the Lashkare Jangwi, the Jaisha Muhammad, the Haqqani Network, and all these terror groups were helped, aided, and supported by Pakistan. And the world, including the United States, including the India and different other countries, need to speak up, need to have a cohesive vision and uh, some kind of a cooperation against these Pakistan-sponsored terrorists. And uh, to the contrary, within a few months, we see a different tune altogether where Zalmay Khalilzad is in bed with uh, you know, Pakistan, almost convinced at every step, and being almost an envoy of Pakistan in the United States, telling them that we need to trust them. We need to be completely convinced that they will abide by whatever happens. Now, what happened? Taliban said that they will not uh, you know, kill innocents. They said the suicide bombings will stop. They said the Americans will also not be targeted. But what happened in reality? We had targeted attacks and assassinations taking place, not just in Kabul, but all across Afghanistan. We had not just the NDS and the ANDSF of the Afghan army being attacked, but we also had targeted attacks at Afghan University, American University in Kabul, at hospitals, emergency services, in government buildings, Ministry of Interior, uh, and several other you know, important buildings uh, in Kabul and elsewhere. So where did the Taliban cooperate with the United States? It did not. And still, the United States had only one thing in mind, that we have to somehow leave and vacate, because Joe Biden has been always of the view that, you know, we should not have boots on ground. We are not there to, you know, tackle the internal dynamics of Afghanistan. 
We are not there to have a democratic government, but we are there to, in fact, you know, launch an attack on Al-Qaeda. Perhaps it ended when Osama bin Laden was killed, and in fact, he was found in Pakistan. So the entire exit strategy collapsed. You know, that is when, uh, you know, when, when the trust factor was not there, when, of course, uh, any kind of a rapport that was built up in reality wasn't there. I mean, any of the demands of the United States or the negotiated team were not being fulfilled, then how did uh, the US really trust the Taliban? On the other hand, the Afghan government, be it Ashraf Ghani, be it Amarullah Saleh, be it any of their you know, ambassadors to the UN or to the US or others, or even Hamid Karzai for that matter, and to an extent even Abdullah Abdullah, if all of them were not in page, on the same page, with the Doha agreement, then how did you dare to announce a timeline, abide by the timeline, and actually fulfill that promise given to the Taliban? And it's not just Biden. Trump did the same. You know, Trump and Biden equally shoulder the responsibility of abandoning the innocent Afghans. And what we have seen over the last one month or a little more is just a teaser of what the Taliban is really going to do over the many months now. And it's not just the question, Patrick, of Afghanistan. It's the question of the entire regional security. I mean, how much the other terror groups, the Islamist radical Sunni terrorist groups will get emboldened with the fact that here is a Sharia law that has been applied completely in Afghanistan. We have a safe shelter. We can run terror camps. We can have a hiding space there. And what kind of a defeat that United States has faced? Because that is what is the chatter. I've been monitoring the dark web where not just the Al-Qaeda, the ISIS and other terror groups are active and they feel emboldened. They see this as a defeat of the United States in Afghanistan and the hell will break loose now because you know there are two countries that are completely focused on diplomatically and otherwise supporting the Taliban. One is Pakistan, obviously, and second, of course, is China. Now, China, I don't know how they will do this, how they will be the next, uh, you know, so-called superpower to actually yeah. enter Afghanistan or whether they will, because it is only going to be a one-way investment, uh, is, is, it's going to be a very tricky affair. It's going to be a very tricky affair. So, so when you say uh, hell will break loose, I got two questions for you. One is, are we at a point of uh, no return, meaning... Is it too late? So if yes, how do we salvage what we have right now? And number two, unpack to me what it means when you say hell will break loose. Well, one, for starters, that all terror groups in the region, be it in Pakistan, be it in Afghanistan or elsewhere, will get emboldened now. They will, uh, you know, you'll have to understand what happened in Pakistan. Over the last three years, Pakistan-based terror groups are underground because of the fact that Financial Action Task Force, FATF, has put Pakistan on the gray list. And this means economic challenges for Pakistan. Now, FATF is a global money laundering uh, you know, action uh, place that actually monitors how money laundering is used, not just by the drug mafia, but also by terror groups. Now in Pakistan, they felt that state was in fact facilitating uh, the finances for different terror groups. Now, FATF had put them on the gray list. And if in the next six months or so, Pakistan does not, comply with the guidelines, it will fall on the blacklist category in which the global aid from the global bank, the ADB and others will not fall in. Now, this is fun. After Taliban takeover, 
where there is no United States present or NATO in Afghanistan. These terror groups who were somewhat in hiding due to FATF pressure got emboldened. Now, many of these prisoners who were from the Jaisha Mohammed, Lashkare Toiba, Lashkare Jangwi, or even Haqqani Network, who were in Kabul prison, who were in different other prisons, are out now. They have entered Pakistan. Many of them are also entered the Pakistani side of Kashmir, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, and are ready at launch pads to enter Kashmir also, and perhaps even uh, the Pakistani Taliban to attack Pakistani security forces and others. So the hell will break loose in such a way that Taliban will continue with its carnage and killings, uh, etc. in Afghanistan. Uh, but the same will happen in Pakistan. Now, many asked me, many journalists asked me, and many experts asked me that what will happen in Kashmir, because Kashmir has been a portfolio uh, you know, of uh, radical terrorism as well. What I say is that Kashmir is still a far-fetched thought. What will happen to Pakistan? You know, because Pakistan has been aiding, abiding, and completely supporting the Taliban. And in months from now, I see massive radicalization happening across Pakistan, in the society, in uh, the entire atmosphere. It's already creeped in. But with the Taliban takeover, it will only grow aggressively. And before you ask me your next question, we have to understand what the Taliban really is. Talib means student. Taliban is its plural. There were, you have to understand, in the 90s, students, uh, Islamic uh, students who were from Afghanistan in Pakistani seminaries, who, what we call madarsas, and they were being trained there. And when trucks used to go from Pakistan to Iran for trade, many of these Afghan warlords used to capture these trucks. They were thieves, they were thugs, they were warlords, others who used to capture these trucks in Afghan territory and take over the goods. So Pakistan suffered a lot. So Pakistan ISI decided to arm these Afghan students who were studying in seminaries and mosques in Pakistan, the biggest of which is in KPK, Khyber Pakhtunwa. And it is actually called the University of Jihad, the Haqqaniya Mosque. And Haqqaniya Mosque is where the Haqqani network get its, gets its name. So they decided to arm these students and these students, Patrick, used to provide security to these trucks. Slowly, this grew into a Taliban movement. They became active, not just providing security to these trucks in different villages of Afghanistan, but they in itself became a militant terror movement supported uh, by the Pakistan ISI. So this has been a long-term strategy of the Pakistan ISI uh, in Afghanistan, in Kashmir, and in this entire region, which again, the United States did not realize and got confused in this entire web of extremism, different groups, uh, and Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and Pakistan chemistry. Well, uh, the Biden administration, the Trump administration, and perhaps Bush uh, in the past, and Obama as well, thought that Pakistan was its closest ally in the region yeah. in fight against terror. But they didn't realize that Pakistan was, in fact, breeding the same terror. How did they, they not know that, though? How, how, did they not, how, how do all these secret intelligence not know that? Well, perhaps they did. But they thought it was important to keep Pakistan as an ally rather than, you know, actually nipping them in the butt. So, so let me ask you maybe a different kind of a question. Who does Taliban fear the most today? Well, perhaps the United States itself, because as of now, uh, they see United States both as an ally, as an oppressor as well. Because, uh, you know, over the years, the chemistry has completely changed. We've seen... Uh, a time when, of course, Taliban attacked not just the Afghan people, the Afghan government, but also 
the United States as well. There were so many troops of the you know, United States that actually uh, fell to the bullets of the Taliban in different attacks. We also saw situations where the Taliban actually infiltrated into the Afghan army and attacked not just the Afghan army, but the United States troops as well. Now, I see this argument time and again on uh, you know, US television, and of course, the Biden administration has been backing this argument that you know, we trained 3 lakh, 300,000 of the Afghan soldiers, yep. and we gave them ammunition, we yep. trained them, we did whatever yep. we could, and that's all we could do. Now, did, do they tell you that 90% of these Afghan troops are actually illiterate? Do they tell you that 90% of these Afghan troops do not have basic education? They do not know how to read and write? Do they tell you that they are only trained in you know, firing and ammunition, etc., but they do not know, they cannot calibrate a strategy, they cannot defend themselves properly in a proper strategic way? Then how do you say that we have 300,000 you know, Afghan crews, we have given them Humvees and latest uh, you know, gunships, etc.? It's not going to work. It's certainly not going to work. I completely understand your argument when you say that you are not there for governance, you're not there for elections, you're not there for nation building. But once you entered, once you have said that you're going to attack the Al-Qaeda, this war is against terror, and there is this huge NATO resolute support uh, you know, group that has come up, you need to have an exit strategy. You need to have support of the people there or the local government while you leave. You cannot abandon them or make them sitting ducks. You know what happened in Iraq, Patrick? United States had to return. They had to return to fight the ISIS. Many experts now say that here also there is ISIS, but in a very different form. ISIS here is called the ISIS Islamic State Khorasan Province. Yeah. But again, this ISIS, this ISKP is not the same as the ISIS of Iraq uh, or Syria. This is very different. The initial fighters of the ISIS or the ISKP in Afghanistan in 2014, 15, 16, came from Pakistan. They were the disgruntled elements of the Haqqani network and the Al-Qaeda and uh, you know, majority of the fighters were from Pakistan. So again and again, there is one term that you may also see, uh, you know, which is uh, Pakistan. Now, many may say that I'm an Indian and you know, I may go on a rhetoric spree against Pakistan, but there are facts. There are books that have been written. There's research that has happened. Not just that, the intelligence agencies and the cooperation between CIA, Mossad, uh, RNAW in India, even ISI for that matter, will reveal what the reality is. What's been happening in seminaries, or what we call madarsas, in the University of Jihad in KPK. Samuel Haq, who was a radical element there, and majority of the government of Taliban, Patrick, which is in power right now, has come from the same seminary in Pakistan, in KPK. So this is the reality of the day. You said, what does Taliban fear the most right now? I don't think they fear anything. They've achieved their goal. And in the days ahead, in the months ahead, it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse for the Afghan people. And that's why I see people from various ideologies, you know, people from different ideologies in Afghanistan yeah. are running for shelter. Let they me... do not want to only come to US or India, but anywhere, it's heartbreaking seeing the stuff that you see out there. Now, this this takes me to a couple different places. You uh, said they, they, they fear U.S., perhaps they fear U.S., and then at the end you say they don't fear anybody. Okay, so let's set that aside.
but also at the same time who's come to their savior is China, right? And you kind of brought up China yourself earlier. This morning, Secretary Anthony uh, Blinken sends a tweet out, right? I don't know if you heard this or not, or if you read this, I'm sure you have. Beijing should let the voices of all Hong Kongers be heard. The PRC's disqualification of district councillors only weakens Hong Kong's long-term political and social stability. We stand with the people of Hong Kong and continue to support their human rights and fundamental freedoms. This is Secretary Anthony Blinken sends this at five, to, uh, this is, uh, uh, goes out, uh, 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 I don't know what time, the 5.26 p.m. Apparently this is yesterday when he sends his tweet. What happens immediately, he takes it down. He deletes the tweet, right? And takes a tweet down. This may have been a couple days ago. And then that generated a couple different uh, theories. Some would call it a conspiracy theory. Some call it a theory. Why is he taking it down? Is he taking it down because who's the one country that hates that message? It's only one, and we know who that is. It's China. If Jack Ma said one thing about Hong Kong, Jack Ma lost all his money. And if anybody voices too much defending Hong Kong, it doesn't sit too well with them. What role is China playing today that scares our secretary, Anthony Blinken, from the most powerful country in the world to delete a tweet just because China's upset? Where is the connection there with China, Taliban, and U.S.? Let me tell you one thing, Patrick. United States had massive leverage in this particular region. But with their steps, the exit strategy, they have completely lost any kind of that leverage. And China, on the other hand, has increased that leverage to a great extent. And let's also remember, Patrick, that there are many American citizens who are still on Afghan soil. Now, the priority of the Biden administration, as they say in their own words, is to actually rescue those citizens. And we know how closely embedded China is right now, Pakistan is right now, with, of course, uh, you know, the Taliban. And perhaps Antony Blinken, now this is, I'm just guessing it. I do not know what the reality is. But perhaps he thought that China, or got some kind of an intelligence, that China will not like it. China may take some aggressive steps and reciprocate in some way, not in China, not in US, but in Afghanistan. That's my fear right now, because I realize this because it's not just Americans. There are many other you know, international citizens who are there in Afghan soil, and many countries are facing a tough time with the Taliban. And Taliban, on the other hand, is using these citizens who receive money, who receive humanitarian aid, who receive whatever is possible uh, at, at, at the at stake. So at one uh, time, this is an embarrassing moment for the Biden administration and Anthony Blinken uh, after the kind of a rhetoric spree that Trump went into against China. Is the Biden administration again going to have a hot and cold approach towards China uh, ahead of, uh, you know, amidst the UNGA? You know, what uh, Biden said at UNGA, he said, he does not want any kind of a Cold War strategy. He does not want another renewed approach of a Cold War happening. He said, we will go on a diplomatic street uh, all across the world. Now, perhaps he does believe that he does not want another war. Perhaps he does realize that he doesn't want another kind of a Iraq or Afghanistan. But is this how your approach is really going to be? By abandoning people completely, by actually emboldening terror groups to attack your closest allies and 
who leave Afghan people high and dry without any kind of a support. And now perhaps becoming an ally of the Taliban where you not just send a humanitarian aid, but leave massive amounts of ammunition for them to use against you and your allies. So I think China is going to increasingly play a very significant and important role in Afghanistan. They're going to invest massively. They already have some projects underway in Afghanistan, including railway projects, because there has been uh, uh, the road connectivity pro project, which is very close and dear to Xi Jinping. And they want to connect not just with Pakistan, with Afghanistan, but to entire Central Asia. Now, will that bring any kind of economic dividends for Xi Jinping or China? That is up for debate right now, but certainly strategically, it is going to be a win-win situation for China, at least in the immediate future. I mean, when you look at the statistics, the average age uh, of a Pakistani median age is 24. The average age in Iran is 30. But the average age of an Afghani is 19 years old, youngest in the world. So that's a great resource right there for China to be able to leverage. Then you have Afghanistan that has estimated over a trillion dollars of untapped mineral reserves. And that's not even talking about lithium that you're talking about there. But let me set that part aside. So this leads me to two areas. And I know you commented on this earlier. I want to see what you say uh, uh, on this topic here. I was born and raised in Iran. And I remember when Carter's campaign was human rights. That's what he campaigned around. Human rights, human rights, human rights, human rights. And he, you know, went to Iran and does what he does with the Shah. And then he leaves December 31st, 1977. He does the toast. He leaves him and Kissinger promise. We're not going to let the revolution happen to the Shah. They leave it alone. They don't help him. Shah leaves. Next thing you know, Iran flips and boom, 3,000 political prisoners come out. And 9-11, many people say it's linked to that. I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to say a lot of people said that was linked to it. I see Biden. I see uh, a Carter. I see them as brothers, meaning very similar ways of leading, both nice, kind, uh, uh, peaceful, wanting things to be, hey, it's all going to work out. Let's not involve, let's not get involved in the conflicts of Iran. Let's not get involved in the conflicts of Afghanistan. Both of them made one of the biggest mistakes. Some say Biden's is bigger than uh, uh, Carter's because we still haven't seen the residual effects of what's going to happen with Biden's mistake. And it's going to take 5, 10, 15, 20 years to see it. We actually know what happened with Carter the next 10 years, half a million lives, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even need to get into that. This is where it takes me to. And I think you're going to disagree, but I want to hear you on why you're going to disagree with this. My opinion, when Reagan came... Overnight, Khomeini gave the prisoners of war. You remember that. And uh, Reagan gave the credit to Carter when they said, hey, you know, they're releasing the prisoner of war. And Reagan could have taken the credit because Khomeini knew Reagan's going to do something about it. He didn't feel like Carter was going to do anything about it. He thought Carter was just a nice president. Nobody feared. And Reagan said it's because of Carter. He gave the credit to him. As much as 80 million people voted against this guy named, I don't know if you've heard of his name, Donald J. Trump, right? They voted against this guy. And 76, whatever million people voted for him. While he was president, we may have had a lot of riots. We may have had a lot of protests in the U.S. We may have had a lot of stuff that was going on in the U.S. Nobody even talked about ISIS for four years. Nobody talked about anything. He put China, uh, held them accountable with all the issues uh, uh, that was going on with the sanctions and everybody else. So there was a certain level of fear to know that no one was going to do anything uh, uh, under him. Do you think a situation like this gives the opposing side an argument to say, 
Well, this is exactly why they didn't fear Trump. If Trump was in the House right now, this would have never happened. That's what you hear millions of people talking about right now. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this. Well, when we speak about Afghanistan, I believe that the Biden and the Trump administration almost had the similar objectives. And when I say similar objectives, both of them wanted no boots on ground. Both of them wanted a similar exit strategy. And both of them did not want any kind of an interference from the United States anymore in the internal situation in Afghanistan. Now, many believe, I've seen those tweets, I've seen uh, articles being written, columns being written, and many experts arguing that if Trump was here, perhaps this was not going to be an exit strategy. I personally do not believe that. I think that the exit strategy could have been, would have been similar. Uh, you know, there was no detailed planning of even uh, how the Bagram airbase should have been kept till the last moment. And I think whatever the military commanders down on ground advised the Biden administration, the same advice would have been gone uh, to the Trump administration and similar action would have been taken. Secondly, you know, when it comes to China, one has to realize and study the pattern that China has really got into in the region, uh, their dynamics to become a superpower. And when in 2012, 2013, Xi Jinping came to power, uh, his entire project, his speeches about China dream, his vision of China dream, and his tendency of expansionist tendency, his vision of China's expansion across the region and the globe. You know, we have faced this here in India, where uh, just last year, after 40 long years, we had a situation in Ladakh, the northernmost part of India, where uh, the Chinese came in and there was a confrontation and 20 Indian soldiers lost their lives. Uh, we also had a situation in the same confrontation. Many of the Chinese soldiers were killed. Some figures say that there were 30 to 40 Chinese soldiers, but China never, as it always happens, they never came up with a figure. Later, a year later, they came out that six or seven of their senior soldiers were killed in that confrontation. So the expansionist tendency has been there time and again. Another important factor of economic upheaval that China engages in is the debt trap. It has done that in Sri Lanka, in Maldives, in many places in African, African region in uh, uh, somewhat uh, places uh, in the Middle East also, Djibouti and others. So this debt trap is something that China is going to exploit in Afghanistan as well. Now, how it does that with the Taliban is something that one needs to see because Taliban does not have any kind of a recognition or diplomatic recognition right now from any of the global countries. There are only a handful that are willing to cooperate and go along with them, apart from, of course, the, U the United Nations humanitarian aid that will come in. But how will the debt trap strategy really work in Afghanistan? I'm curious about that. I'm really curious about how China takes about the important infrastructure projects in Afghanistan, because, you know, it's, it's Soviet Union has been there, has done that. The United States has been there, done that. And they have seen the failure of their any kind of a a situation of nation building or any kind of a governance with such ethnic strife, with such kind of a, you know, uh, even illiteracy uh, out there. So how will China manage is something that one has, needs to witness because it could be, again, 
uh, Patrick, that uh, a decade from now, you would be interviewing me or I would be interviewing you and we will be discussing how China is now exiting uh, Afghanistan. So it would be a similar situation, but uh, you started your question comparing the Biden administration's policies with the Trump administration. Or Carter, or Carter, Trump or Carter. Like the yes. similarities yes. between Carter and Biden and then how Trump would have had military go last rather than military go first. Because my challenge is purely a sequencing challenge. Why did military leave first? You leave military last before you get everybody out. The, so that's the biggest difference between Trump's exit. The objective is the same. No one's saying, first of all, Trump never wanted to go in there anyways in the first place. 20 years ago, he did a whole article about the fact that, you know, going against Bush. You know, I don't, I don't know if it was New York Times or USA Today. So he's never wanted to be there. But to leave, leaving with soldiers last rather than leaving with, that's why I'm asking about the sequencing side. And then comparing Biden and uh, Carter as being nice people, but does the world fear those two? I think history says no. Well, uh, I agree with you, but you know, I'll give you one example, and this is where I will uh, end this particular argument. You know, what the United States did in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, apart from the military occupation that happened, they let a corrupt regime prosper. They let drug mafia and drug growth heroin, uh, hashish, ganja, uh, and opium grow massively. This is what they did. There was a point, and perhaps I don't have the latest figures right now with me, but 93 to 95% of the global heroin and opium came from Afghanistan. I mean, the kind of killings that are happening all across the globe, the drug mafia killings, the drug lords, etc. their production, their entire epicenter was in Afghanistan. And secondly, be it Hamid Karzai or be it Ashraf Ghani. Ashraf Ghani, of course, has become the latest villain and a punching bag, uh, perhaps, for the United States. Uh, they, they were corrupt. I mean, everybody knew this. The US knew this. The NDS knew it. Uh, the regional governments here in South Asia knew it. And still, they let them prosper. I mean, there was no mechanism of transparency or some kind of, a, you know, a, 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 a questions being asked anywhere. So, this led to a complete collapse as well, where you know you have a government which only works for money, which knows that the US is going to arm you uh, and give you a lot of protection and give you money. Uh, and that's your end goal. Your end goal is not peace. Your end goal is not transparency. Your end goal is not to keep your flock together and keep all tribes and ethnic uh, people together. So I think the United States failed in that miserably as well, where they could not check one, the menace of drugs. Second, the menace of a corrupt government that only grew further. And third, and the most important, which I emphasize, the menace of a nexus between the Pakistan ISI, the Taliban, and mushrooming the terror groups, Sunni Islamist terror groups, which are anyway now even going to grow further. So these are the terrible mistakes oh. that have happened. Of course, I completely agree with you that the least and the basic thing that perhaps even uh, any strategist from any of the top universities in uh, US would have told them is that the military needs to stay till the very end. You need to evacuate each and every citizen first. Yeah, and by the way, that's not even Democratic or Republican. That's not, that's not politics. Yes. That's just basic military strategy. So, so who do you think ought to be, and you may or may not have an opinion on this, who ought to be held accountable in the sequence of how we left? Who, who is supposed to be held accountable 
for the way we left Afghanistan? I think it is Biden. I mean, Biden and nobody else. I mean, Trump, uh, of course, uh, because the kind of timelines that he set up were unrealistic. I mean, May 1st, it was impossible to, in fact, evacuate not just American citizens, uh, other uh, citizens from other countries or Afghan SIV applicants and others who, anyway, many of them are still stranded there. And the timelines were unrealistic completely, could not have been fulfilled. Now, Biden says that there were timelines set and he had to abide by it is something that I do not agree with. What are negotiations for? What is your leverage for? Why are you called a superpower over the last many decades? So I think they had a certain amount of leverage. They had a huge amount of leverage in the negotiations and they could have pushed this further. I agree. And a strategy of collapse that completely happened where the military have, would have advised them because their focus was not, mind you, Patrick, to evacuate people. Their focus was to evacuate their military. So their strategy, if you go to Biden's statements in the past, if you go to statements of Lincoln or even other diplomats, they say repeatedly that these are the many troops that will remain. These are the many troops that will remain and will exit finally. So their focus was not on these many thousand innocents that will be evacuated. So uh, let's face it that now uh, Blinken might create a show all across the globe that we rescued more than 100,000 people. And uh, that was a, a major task uh, in the process. 13 US soldiers also lost their life. But the reality of the matter is that they never wanted to rescue citizens. That was not their priority. Their priority was to exit this conflict yeah. that was created by the United States a monster that was created and perhaps a monster that will remain for the Afghan people and perhaps the remaining few Afghan citizens. In situations like this, to regain leverage like this may take a decade or two. When you have opportunities like this, you don't let it go. The moment you lose leverage, it's over with. You don't get a second chance for leverage and now you're sending troops back. Why are you sending troops back if the goal was to get them to go out? So your sequencing was all out of whack. The story you're reading about with child wives where families are exchanging their daughters to Taliban for safety and freedom. Is that just conspiracy or is that really happening right now? It's really happening. It's not uh, after U.S. exited. I mean, when U.S. exited, it aggravated the situation and it's happening. I mean, uh, uh, there are stories of Afghan women who do not have money, uh, families who do not have money, and they are selling uh, them to warlords who do not have children. And they are negotiating the price of their kids. Imagine what's happening. And uh, this has this has this will only grow further. I mean, the kind of human tragedy that we are witnessing here is massive. And mind you, the international media's attention, Patrick, has been on Kabul. It has not been on the other uh, provinces all across Afghanistan, where situation is worse. What's happening in Kandahar? which is the so-called cultural or the, uh, you know, religious epicenter of the Taliban. They're killing innocents. They're killing at point blank range, summary executions that are happening where not just the erstwhile Afghan army people or the NDA secret service people, but innocent government employees. Somebody ha might, might have had an ego hassle or some argument in the past with the Taliban. Those people, innocents, are being butchered uh, completely. So this is the reality of Afghanistan right now. And 
on your uh, show today, Patrick, I'll tell you, and I predict this, that years from now, United States will be forced to enter Afghanistan again. And it will not be to fight the ISIS. It will not be to fight the Taliban. It will be to fight the monsters that they created and they did not care about. The mushrooming Islamist terror organizations that will have their base camps in Afghanistan. Now imagine globally, the kind of Islamic terror groups that were shadowing or perhaps underground did not have as much mechanism because of the changing dynamics that happened after 9-11, the raised alarm bells, the security cooperation, the anti-terrorism cooperation that happened will completely now die down because the kind of emboldening that will happen and perhaps who knows, the Taliban and the Pakistan will use Afghanistan soil to actually uh, you know, mushroom these militias, these terror groups on Afghanistan, Afghanistan soil. It's been already happening. It's not that something new will happen. In Helmand, uh, there have been terror camps of Jaisha Mohammed, Lashkar Jangwi, and others that have been running for years together. Now, this is again the era of 1990, uh, where Mullah Omar uh, with the Pakistan ISI, you know, ran several camps. <laughs> you know, very interestingly, a few years back, I met some former terrorists uh, in Kashmir in Northern uh, part of Kashmir called Kupwara. We met at a cafe there and they confessed. They were strong built, uh, you know, more than six feet height people who, have, who had may, uh, you know, stayed in prison for almost two decades. And they confessed to me that, you know, they were made to cross in 1990 from Kashmir to Pakistan. And in Pakistan, they met a colonel of uh, the Pakistan ISI who blindfolded them, put them on, onto a truck, hundreds of them and sent them to Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, they realized that, you know, hey, we are here in Afghanistan. And they were pushed into a camp for three months, which was run by Mullah Omar uh, and all these people. And Mullah Omar and others, with the support of the Pakistan IS and others, trained them. And finally, they unleashed a war, uh, you know, in Kashmir, where innocents were killed. So this is an ongoing uh, process. Now, of course, the Biden administration says that they will see their uh, diplomatic ties with Pakistan. They will see uh, some kind of a realignment with Pakistan. But I don't see a situation where the United States still realizes the consequences of letting uh, a pass on Pakistan. The same happened with Trump. You know, Trump, when he immediately came to power, the Trump administration said, we will go hammer and tongs against Pakistan. We will end the defense budget completely that is allotted to them. We will not have a security or a terror cooperation until they give us uh, in writing or some kind of a proof that they will act against terrorists. And look what happened. Trump, for, you know, over the years became so close to Pakistan that finally, uh, you know, Zalmay Khalilzad was appointed, who anyways was hated by the Pakistanis, but, uh, you know, they had a cooperation going. Pakistan was able to, con you know, convince not just the CIA, but the State Department as well, that they are their ally. And this is not going to change anytime soon, mind you. And this is going to be the epicenter of the global jihad, the global Islamist terror uh, organizations. And unfortunately, uh, we, are, we are yet to see worse, unfortunately, in the region. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, in, in, there's a quote that says, in every great successful business, you have the visionary, you have the administrator, and you have a son of a bitch, you know, somebody that's just the a-hole that comes in. Sometimes I wonder if... I want a president that is too liked by everybody. 
versus having somebody that's feared a little bit. You know, what's more important, being feared or respected? You hear the saying both, you know, whether you watch Godfather or you read general books and all this other stuff. I don't see a lot of fear with the existing... I don't know if the enemy fears our current administration. They sit there and say, oh my gosh, I think they're going to retaliate. Versus at least with the last guy, there was a level of fear from the enemy, which I think is necessary. Uh, question for you in regards to Russia, and this will be the last one to wrap up with. It's been great speaking with Patrick, you. Uh, Patrick, before you ask me uh, the further question, I want to just comment on Biden, because you made a very interesting point. You said that about fear of Biden or of United States all across the globe. You know, I was in US last year when the election process had actually begun. Uh, I was in DC uh, uh, with, with you know, State Department had invited me for uh, an event there. And I witnessed the Iowa caucuses. I went to Iowa. I, I saw Biden. I, uh, I met other leaders, uh, et cetera. And I almost predicted to my friends that here, is Biden, you know, I respect him for his political journey. I respect him for his conviction of courage. Uh, uh, you know, he might have massive challenges. He might have his own difficulties or criticisms, but, you know, here is a leader who has to be there. So uh, I won't call myself a Biden fan, but, you know, I respected his vision. I respected his political journey, the hardships of life that he suffered. And he gave a fantastic speech on the inauguration day, a wonderful speech that he gave you know, which talked about how the wars need to end, how, uh, you know, there needs to be some kind of a compassion and, you know, America will be there uh, as a superpower for the entire world and how, you know, the focus will shift towards important issues like climate change, etc. And that was witnessed, uh, you know, with John Kerry's appointment, etc. But to shut your eyes, to become a mute spectator, to not realize the consequences of each step that you take and the steps that were taken initially by the Obama government or by the Trump government or the Bush administration. And now you're just taking a U-turn. You're taking the most easiest thing to do and imagining people not realizing the consequences, the security challenges that this will lead to. So I'm, in my opinion, in the last uh, 16 to 18 months, my opinion on Biden has drastically changed. I do not see Biden with the same light. I think that Biden needs to rethink, recalibrate his strategy, not just vis-a-vis -vis South Asia, not just vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan and Pakistan, but with China as well, with Quad, which was being talked about, you know, uh, not playing a, so much of a relevant role that it has to. So I feel uh, that Biden is not realizing the blunders or historic blunders that he is committing and perhaps, as you rightly pointed out, we'll only see five to 10 years down the line of what the consequences of each of these steps really will be. You know, we can wrap up on that. I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. There are, I thought he was a good two, Biden. You know, a lot of times companies make a mistake. They take an employee within the company that's been there for 30 years. And they're like, oh, this guy has the most, you know, social capital. He knows the most about the company. He has the most history. He's been around from day one when the founder was still alive. And he knew the wife and the kids and all this stuff. We need to make him the new CEO. And they make him the CEO, and the company goes from growing at 22% to now lose its 18% because he simply is not a good number one. It is a very different. Bill Clinton was a good number one. Certain people were good number ones. This guy's not a good number one. He's a good two, three, four, five. He's not a good number one. There's a very different pressure to being a CEO, a founder, a person running the largest corporation in the world called 
the United States of America in a climate like this where China's trying to exploit and be the biggest empire to compete against the U.S., and it's the philosophy of wars on how they govern versus how we govern. We like freedom of speech. They don't like it. They like censorship. I think, uh, I think the mistake was on who was going to be number one. Uh, and, and, you know, even the topic right now is who would have been different handling a situation like this, Biden or Hillary? You'd be amazed how many people are saying Hillary would have been much better for the job than Biden would have been. But anyways, it is what it is. And, and I agree. And I hope that Biden realizes this, does some course correction, because there's still time. There's still time. I'm hoping against hope. I know that. But let's see how things are. But that's not how it works. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think when you're when you put the wrong person at the one spot, that person has always been like that for 80 years. They're not going to all of a sudden change. Your DNA is your DNA. You can't get a person that's a point guard to be a center all of a sudden. You can't do that. You're a point guard. You're not a center. Michael Jordan wasn't a good basketball coach, but he was a great player. Certain people are not meant to be number one. This guy's not a number one, and we're paying a price for it right now. Uh, my suggestion would be to see a different... Uh, Anyways, my solution is a different solution, but it's not a solution that would work in the current system that we have here. But anyways, listen, you and I try to solve every problem in the world in 45 minutes. I don't know if we're successful, but I think we had a great conversation here together. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time for coming on, and I look forward to having you back on again in the future. Absolutely, Patrick. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. Somebody who voted for Biden but is not happy about what happened with Afghanistan what are your thoughts about what happened with Afghanistan? Do you think we made the right decisions? Was there better sequencing? Curious to know your thoughts. Comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, I have a feeling you're also going to like the interview I did with Matt Zeller on similar topics. He's a former CIA operative. If you've never watched that, click here to watch that one. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.